Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. Reunification is the priority. However, there comes a time where permanency needs to outweigh reunification because there comes a point where you've you've reached this this peak and if you keep on going then the damage i feel is worse and my girls needed permanency 2020 was about that tipping point for us we reached the point where we needed permanency for the girls they needed permanency and we didn't get it and i did not agree with that and i made it i literally told people that i was going to go stand out the defects office with a pot and a spoon and just start banging it until somebody paid me some attention because i was just so frustrated can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years we feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa, a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way Akasa works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane speaks with Megan Elizabeth. Now, Jane and I have been talking a lot about community and family and how we can create a family with our community. And Megan takes this to a whole new level. So enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm here with Megan Elizabeth Ward. Hello, Megan. Hello, good evening. Uh, so uh, you have one of those names, Megan Elizabeth Ward. I'm Jane Amelia Larson. Do you like to be called Megan or Megan Elizabeth or what? Just Megan. Just Megan? Okay. Yes. All right, great. All right, so I met you in Athens, Georgia, and I found out that you did this amazing thing. But before we get to that, just tell me a little bit about who you are, how you were raised. Okay, I'm from South Florida, uh, specifically Jupiter, Florida, Um, so way down near the end, and uh, I was there for several years until my parents split, and then I moved to Georgia, Um, and I've been here ever since. I ended up at the University of Georgia as a student, earning my bachelor's and my master's, and Somehow, um, one thing you'll learn about Athens is once you once you come here, it's really hard to leave. And so, um, almost twenty years later, I'm still here, and now I'm on faculty at the University of Georgia. Yeah, I've heard that from a lot of people. It's hard to leave it. It's just so great, right? It's a magical city. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you are married, and you have a lovely wife whom I met, and then. How did you end up getting into foster care? Because we're going to talk about that now. Okay. We ended up fostering. We started our journey in 2017 when we had a nephew in Florida um, come into care. And at that time, we didn't know much about foster care. I was familiar with it kind of on the periphery. I had an aunt who was a foster parent for a very long time in Pennsylvania. And so I kind of grew up knowing what she did. Um, but I was in Florida or Georgia and she was in Pennsylvania. So clearly I didn't have, you know, a front row seat to it. Right. Um, 
But when my nephew came into care, um, you know, we had that thought that most families have, which is, oh, my goodness, he can't go into foster care. We, he can't live with strangers. Um, and so and so my some of my other family members ended up caring for him initially, but they they were also caring for some other some other family members. And it was just, it was too much for them to have as many children as they did at the time. And so Amanda and I stepped up and we were like, we can do this. Um, we, we can take him, we can take the baby. And so we started our foster care journey as what they call an ICPC family, right. which is when a child's in care in one state and is placed into another state's care. And so it took us about um, four or five months to get approved. And that was really painful knowing that he was there waiting to come to us, but that we had to go through all of the approval for ICPC. Right. Yeah. Can you give me an idea of that? Cause I, I know most people don't know what ICPC is and it's, it's uh it's, it's great when it works, but it's really hard to get it through. Right. Yes. It's one of those things that both States have to agree. Um, and the biological parents have to agree. And the, the family that is taking on the child has to be approved. And so getting that many people to the table to agree, getting the approvals, getting the legal paperwork. There are families that I know who have been attempting ICPC for six months, 12 months, 18 months. Um, the fact that we did it in a time frame as quickly as we did is actually pretty extraordinary. But I think it's because Amanda and I are we're real self driven, and so we we Googled as much as we could Google how to become foster parents, how to do ICPC, and we signed ourselves up for all of the things we needed to sign up for. But if we had sat and waited for someone to tell us how to do it we'd still be waiting. It takes a lot of initiative to get that ICPC process going. And you don't have to be full foster parents a lot of times because you're a kinship home and that level of approval is different than a full foster home. And so that helped, that that did help initially. Right. So how long was your nephew with you then? So he came to us on Thanksgiving week of 2017 and he left um, Labor Day of 2018. So it was about 10 months. And uh, you, I'm sure you fell in love with him. Well, you were probably already really cared for him, but then you fell in love with him and you had to let him go, right? Oh, that was letting him go, even though we knew we were going to see him again, was the hardest thing we've ever done. We cried for weeks, <laughs> weeks. Hmm. And then somebody came knocking at your door. What happened next? Yes. So... So when DFACS knew, when our DFACS in the state of Georgia um, knew that he was going home, there were some initial conversations about whether or not we would be willing to continue our foster care journey with children not related to us. Um, and we knew at that point of time we would have to go through full approval. And so we started the full approval process a little bit while he was still with us, just doing paperwork and some other little stuff. And after he left, we had a case manager come to our house to do some of those final steps of approval. And it was it was funny because it was like she knocked on the door and she came to talk about our approval and the way she was talking about our approval was like real immediate. And I finally said, is there a kid in your car right now that's waiting to come into my house? <laughs> she wow. Said, she said, no, but there could be. <laughs> and I was like, ah. Um, so we were fully approved. He went home Labor Day weekend and we were fully approved. I want to say 
the last week of September because we got our first placement on October 3rd. Right. So how many kids have you had so far? I think the child that is downstairs right now is number 45. Wow. 45. I left her eating dinner. I was like, I have to go make a phone call. Here's the remote. Here's some food. I'll be back. <laughs> and um, how many have you had at any one time? Um, the most I've had in the house sleeping at one time was four, which is not that many. You know, I know families who do eight and 10, but I have a very small house, so it is limiting, but I have had, I want to say my most for one night was no, maybe five, five in one night. Mm -hmm. And you've had sibling sets too for quite a while, right? You had two little kids that stayed with you for four years? Yes, I have a sibling set of, I call them toddlers because they were one and two when they came to me, but now they're four and six. And I guess four and six isn't toddlers anymore. So my little girls came to me at one and four. They are with me still. They're four and six, almost going on four years. And they're very close to going home. They're on what's called trial home placement which means that um, they are technically placed with their mother, but still in foster care. Um, but they still spend two nights a week with me just to kind of check in and help ease the transition. So one of them is here tonight. And then I have two of a sibling set of teenagers right now as well. Right. So how is it then, um, how, how does it feel when you taking these kids, you know that they need you, they need your home, they need your care, they need your attention, and then you got to give them up. So I, I, having done this as long as we've done this and having had the number of kids that, that we've had, what we always tell new foster parents and I don't know that it's right, but what we always tell new foster parents is your first goodbye is the hardest because you haven't had any practice at goodbye. You have a lot of practice at all the other things. You've done the trainings. Um, you've done the case manager visits. You've done the doctor's appointments. You've done court. But there's there's no way to train yourself for that emotion of saying goodbye. And so your first goodbye is a real heartbreak, like full-blown heartbreak. But then once you've done it, you have the full understanding of the journey from the beginning to the end. And when you've seen a successful reunification, then it makes it a lot easier to um, cheer on reunification and support it and and thrive, see the kids thrive and, and yearn for that. Um, and so it's a lot easier now that we know from the start our goal is to get all these kids home. Right. And have you ever had an experience where the kid was reunified, but then it failed and came back to you? Because that happens. Oh, yes, that happens. I have not had a case in which a child that reunified came back to me, but I do have, um, of my 45-ish children, what's really upsetting is that about a third of them have come to me out of failed adoptions. So like oh. my teenagers were adopted as toddlers and then came to me as teenagers out of a failed adoption. I get a ton of failed adoption kids. What? The, the, the family that adopted them as toddlers suddenly didn't want them as teenagers? Yes, a lot. That just is lousy. That is lousy. Yes, we get 
a ton of failed adoption cases. They either, you know, they grew into teenagers and they couldn't get along or the family was abusing them from the start and it wasn't known pre-adoption or child has chosen a lifestyle that the parents just weren't ready for. It's a lot, mm-hmm. a ton of failed adoptions. Right. And have, have you seen a lot of trauma with the, in, in the kids who have come to your home? Yes, I would say them. Yeah, they all I mean, they all have trauma. I I find that even though the littles have trauma, it's a little bit easier because they don't fully understand what's going on. And of course, that's easier in a lot of ways. I would honestly say the most trauma comes out of our failed adoptions are two teenagers who have been with us now for two years almost that that trauma runs really, 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 really deep. Yeah, I bet it's really hard to get over. Uh, And Mm -hmm. because because they're they were given up once and then given up again. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, will they likely stay with you? Do you think that's what's going to happen? Or, or is there a placement for them possible somewhere else? Well, placing teenagers is really hard. <laughs> Very hard. With. That's right. Very hard. Um, and placing a sibling set of teenagers is even harder. Mm-hmm. And it's a boy and a girl. So, you know, there's dynamics there. No, I think that we are their long-term family. I think what they need to decide, and they can only decide it long-term, is whether or not they want to be adopted again because they have such a negative understanding of adoption now that they might not want to. They may just choose to stay here and age out of foster care and come back for holidays, and that's fine. Or they may decide to give it another go, but they need to decide that after they spend time working through their trauma and learning how to live on the other side of it. Right. So have you and your wife ever taken breaks or do you just go, go, go? Like just knock at the door again and then knock at the door again and um. <laughs> you try to take a break and then you can't, right? Or what? She, she tries really hard to take a break. <laughs> She's probably listening to me right now on the other side of that door, rolling her eyes at me. (laughs) Um, So when our nephew went home on Labor Day weekend, then we took a placement on October 3rd, which was our very first non-kinship placement. The very first time that a real case manager showed up with real strangers and was like, good luck. However, we did not take, so he went home Labor Day weekend and we did only emergency placement for the remainder of 2018. So we had about five or six placements that fall that came for one night, two nights, two weeks, somewhere in that range. And then we did not take a long-term placement until January of 2019. Our little girls came to us January 10th of 2019. And we planned on taking a break after them. And then the teenagers came. Right. So can you explain to our listeners what the emergency care is and also respite care? Because you do both. Yes, I do long-term emergency and respite. So long-term is care when... Long-term care is when you agree to take on a placement knowing that it's going to end in either adoption or reunification, and you're willing to work it for that entirety, whether it be six months or four years. Um, Emergency placement generally happens when um, a child comes into care or children come into care and defects needs time to find long-term placement. So for an example of, of the young lady I have tonight, she's 16. She came into care at 4.30 this afternoon. You know, DFACS attempts to work a 9 to 5, so they're not finding long-term care between 4.30 p.m. and 5 p.m. So they would call families that they know do emergency placement, and they would say, you know, they would give you the rundown of, hey, we have this child. 
we're looking for a long-term placement. Can you provide emergency placement until long-term placement is found? My shortest launch emergency placement was seven hours. They came at 2 a.m. They were out the door at 9 a.m. Hmm. Um, my longest long-term placement, I think, was about 15 days. And it just gives DFACs time to find the right placement because ideally kids aren't being moved a lot. It keeps the kids out of hotels and out of DFACs offices. And a lot of times it lets us get into court for the 72 hour hearing where the plan is made for that child. Are they going to stay in care? What will the case plan be for the, for the parents? Because some kids go home at the 72 hour hearing. And so Placement only exists for three days. And so it just gives DFACs time to make a plan. And then respite placement is when a foster family needs a break and another foster family provides placement for the children. So for example, my wife and I are going to Europe for 10 days this summer. My teenagers are not staying home alone. So they will go to respite placement for those 10 nights and they'll get to hang out with another foster family who has teenagers and they're going to have a great time. How did you find them or did um, the uh, system find them? How like how how they find a family? So it depends. You can call your case manager and say, I need respite. You are entitled to 10 respite nights a year in Georgia. I don't know if that's the same everywhere, but we get 10 respite nights a year. They're paid. And so DFACs, my case manager would find respite for me. Um, but what we really try to do here is um, we're in a really strong region. So the state of Georgia is broken into 14 regions. We're region five. We are in one of the strongest regions, I think, in the whole country. And so we have a great system, a great network of foster families where I can toss it out in our channels and say like, you know, hey, my fellow foster friends, we're traveling on these dates. I have these kiddos who's available for respite and I'll have different families raise their hands and then I'll do that same in turn for them. And what's really great about that is usually A, it's families that I have a relationship with. So my kids know them. They're not going to strangers. And B, it takes work off of DFAX plate. All I have to say is my kids are going to this family on these days and DFAX is like, great, instead of them having to go and make all those phone calls. Yeah, because the caseworkers are super overloaded there as well as... I mean, in California, it's crazy. They're supposed to have, I think, less than 30 cases, and they usually have actually double or triple that. So yeah. There are enough hours in the day. No, it's insane. It's absolutely insane. And I think, unfortunately, it's like that everywhere. Yeah, unfortunately, I think it is. I, I was just reading, it looks like now it's close to 672,000 kids in care at any one time in the United States. For a while, it was half a million, which is, is an obscene amount already. And now it's just climbing, climbing, climbing. Mm -hmm. And and all over, uh, people think it's just in the cities, but it's not. It's uh, mm -hmm. like, like where you are. It's in Athens, Georgia, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, um, I'm about an hour, just over an hour from Atlanta. I don't get any Atlanta kids. All of my kids are from Region 5, which is, you know, we're, we're not city at all. We're, some of our counties are farmland. Um, I say farmland, not not full farmland, but it, it can, it's some rural areas. And then you've got Athens, which is more of a university town, but like no, by no means are we city around here. Right. So how do you find the work? Is it really, really hard? <laughs> yes. yes. It, it really is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really hard. Um, it's first, it's really time consuming. I know that all parents have, it's time consuming to be a parent to start with. But most parents aren't also scheduling court hearings. You know, they're not going to court hearings. They're not making their way home for one or two or three case manager visits a month. On top of that, you might have 
calls with the children's attorneys. You might have CASAs coming to and from your house. And then you have to do your trainings. And if your children are teenagers, they're going to have, you know, teenager programming that they have to do. So it's not just, you know, it is school and it is doctor's appointments and it is therapies, but that's pretty normal for the rest of the world. And then you have this whole demand on top of that. Last night I had two case managers in my house for an hour and a half and a CASA in my house for an hour and a half with four kids and four foster parents. <laughs> wow. Wow. And how do you and your wife balance how, how it works without killing each other? <laughs> know that we're doing it well. We were telling our case manager this last night, we're big believers of um, knowing your lane and staying in it. And so like last night when our case manager was here, she was asking us this question and Amanda was making dinner. And I was, I was giving her the example. I was like, I'm not going to go in there and make dinner. Dinner is not my lane. I never make dinner. I don't know what's for dinner. I don't do the grocery shopping. She does dinner and I'm not going to touch it because that's her lane. But likewise, she's not going to schedule our case manager visits because that's my lane. And so we're really big on if we both stay in our lane and we both get our things done, then the house will continue to run. And would you describe your house as a happy home? <laughs> yeah, it's chaotic, but really happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it seems so by looking at your face, but you know what? And the reason why I was so pleased that you were willing to do this interview is because, as you know, foster parents get a really bad rap. Yes. And sometimes for good reason. There's a lot of people mm -hmm. that are doing it only for the money. Mm -hmm. And they have their own bio kids who they treat better than the foster kids that they take in the, into their homes. Um, you know, they take the things that belong to the foster kids and the kids never see them. There's all that stuff, right? Yeah. And unfortunately, I think that for dramatic effect, a lot of television shows will sometimes have like a foster care storyline where the foster parents are abusing the child or beating the child or locking the child up. There's, and, and we're, were demonized in, in yes. for entertainment's sake. And I always watch them because I'm obsessed with them. But it's not real. I mean, I know a lot of foster parents and all of the foster parents, and I'm sure there are some bad ones out there. I'm, I'm sure. But all the foster parents that I interact with regularly are just incredible. They're incredible. And I think part of that is the humans that I know that have signed up for this really crazy journey. But I also think it's the culture that we live in in our community. We have, a, like I said earlier, we have a really strong region and our foster parents and our, our state partners at DFACS, we work in tandem. Um, I know a lot of areas where the foster parents and DFACS do not get along. That's right. right. Mm -hmm. DFACS is telling the foster parents what to do and, and the foster parents are butting up against that. That does not really happen in our area. But I think it's because we have really strong leadership and we have really strong case managers. And we just have this really strong supportive community that we're really lucky to have. Right. So, but even so, and we talked about this a little bit on the phone, you get your heart broken regularly, not just because of the kids, but I imagine that there'd be some times where you think, oh, I wish I'd done that differently, or I wish I'd handled that differently. Oh, sure. Well, and I think that that stems from the best thing that you can do as a foster parent from the beginning is accept and understand that you have no control. And that's really hard because I love to have control of everything. But at the end of the day in foster care, really, there's only two people who have control. And the first is the judge. The judge is deciding if these kids are in care, how long they're in care and the case plan. And then the second is the biological parents because they're deciding whether or not to work that case plan. 
And as the foster parent, you can advocate and you can make requests and you can write emails and you can document everything. But at the end of the day, all of that is turned back over to the judge and the judge makes the decision. And a lot of times that's based on DFAX's input. But there's, we have no control. And, and you just have to accept that. Right. But I would imagine sometimes you, you probably disagree, right? Oh, sure. Yeah. I, I love my girl's biological mother. I do. I love her dearly. She could listen to this. Um, and she knows, she, she knows that I believe that um, the girls have been in care for too long. I, I, I believe that reunification should always be the priority. And I've told her this and I've told the courts this and I'll tell every foster parent this reunification is the priority. However, there comes a time where permanency needs to outweigh reunification because there comes a point where you've, you've reached this, this peak. And if you keep on going, then the damage I feel is worse. And my girls needed permanency. 2020 was about that tipping point for us. We reached the point where we needed permanency for the girls. They needed permanency and we didn't get it. And I did not agree with that. And I made it, I literally told people that I was going to go stand out the defects office with a pot and a spoon and just start banging it until somebody paid me some attention. Cause I was just so frustrated, but, and I mean, I didn't agree with it, but I didn't have the control. Right. So you didn't have a choice, right? Nope. Nope. And how are those girls now? They're good. I mean, they're still with me. <laughs> so oh, of, course. of course, it's the same girls. They're still with you. Yeah. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. They are on trial home placement, which I mean, if their reunification is successful, you know, trial home placement is the first step. So we've made a big step. If it's successful, then, then, then the judge knew what she was doing the whole time. And that is, that is fantastic. Um, and if not, then it's going to be even more heartbreaking that we will continue this. And, and it, it's, it's really hard. Cause like I said, they came to me at one and two. So they spent their, ent- all of their toddler years with me, pre-K with me. Now we're in grade school. Um, and on top of all of that, the littlest was, was diagnosed severe autistic. And so she has her own, you know, mental understandings of the world and the own, her own way of, of responding to everything that's going on. And, and the autism just makes it that much harder in this environment. And so we're playing a waiting game now. You know, we're just, we're supporting our biological mom in every way we can so that her reunification is successful, you know, going above and beyond and just hoping that at the end of the day, this has a really happy ending. Hmm. And have you thought about having your own biological kids? Yeah, I would be terrible if I was pregnant. I don't even like, like stubbing my toe. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, I would be, uh, I would be miserable for nine months and I'm going to let that one I'm going to leave that to others. Well, what about your wife? What about your oh, wife? Oh, no, 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 no. She's too worried about like keeping her abs or something. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. She's super fit. I remember. Yeah. 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 No. Um, so, so you haven't burned out. You're still doing it. Yeah. We are going to, when the, when the littles leave, um, we're going to take a break from littles for a while and, you know, give our attention to our teenagers and, you know, give them time without, two little sisters needing things all the time and just being able to do things as a family that you can't do with little kids. You know, it's, it's not as much fun to go to a theme park with little kids. Cause you can't ride all the roller coasters, That's all right. that kind of stuff. That's so right. we're going to spend, we're going to spend several months with just our teenagers. And then, um, after that we might be willing to take, um, littles again, but we need a break and we need to re-energize and then we'll keep going. Right. Do you think there's anything special about you that allows you to do this work? 
Oh, that's a hard one. So I used to think this was really naive of me. I used to think like really when I was really new to this, I would be like, why doesn't everybody do this? If we just all played our part, then there would be no kids without a home and the world would be a better place and all these things. And then after my first reunification, I was like, oh, no, everyone cannot do this. This is really hard. And so I I learned my lesson that I needed to calm down and not try to encourage the entire world to do this. No, I don't think there's anything special about us. I just, I think you have, if you are comfortable in giving up control, if you're comfortable in living in a bit of chaos, if you're able to have somewhat of a flexible schedule for all of the appointments, and if you're looking for a way like I just, when people ask me why I do this, like at the end of the day, when, when my time here is done, I need to know that I did something meaningful besides go to work. And that was, this was kind of how I chose to give back because I am a government employee. So I'm not going to make a ton of money in life. Let's be honest. I don't really like physical labor, so I'm not going to do a ton of volunteer work. And so like, I had to find that thing that was meaningful for me that kind of, emphasized, you know, my family and my friends and my work. And this is what we chose. And so even though you say you don't think there's anything special about you, you've given up control. You are living in chaos when you don't want (laughs) to live in chaos. And you've allowed for that in order to do a greater good. Most people would not do that. No, and that's why most people don't do this. You know, the chaos, even though it sounds negative, I have seven siblings, and so I've always lived in chaos. And so, (laughs) like, it's healthy, fun chaos. (laughs) Right, me too. I come from from a family of 10, and it was always chaos. That's just... Right. That's just it. Yeah. Yeah, and so it's that... It's. I don't know if it's chaos or it's kind of like that buzz of of excitement. There's just always something going on. But yeah, no, like a lot of most people won't won't do this in their lives. But that's okay because maybe they are contributing to charities that are doing good work or they are volunteering. You know, just as long as everybody finds their way to make a mark and leave an impact and and make their lives fulfilled. It doesn't matter if you're fostering kids or dogs or donating money or planting flowers or whatever you do. That's what I always tell my students, at least, because I have a lot of graduating seniors. And at the very end of the semester, I say, make sure you find something that is meaningful to you. First, find a job, get yourself situated as an adult, and then find something meaningful. And so what, how do you imagine yourself in the future? Like if this continues or creatively, let's say, or uh, any of the things that you dream about or what does that look like for you? Well, so I don't think we've talked about this yet. So this is going to really throw a kink and everything. Um, I think the future looks like, um, me and another foster mom here in, in my area have started a foster care nonprofit. And so the future is attempting to make it the most successful it can be. Right now, it is only serving our region, so the 12 counties in our region. But our ideal future success would mean that it does so much good in our region that it is taken statewide. And what we do here would be replicated throughout Georgia. So that's hopefully our future. Right. So what does that look like? What kind of work are you doing then? You're, that's yeah. a great question. 
Um, somebody else asked me this today and I said, how do I explain this? Oh, it was my mom. My mom was like, you're doing what? And I was like, oh yeah, by the way. <laughs> um, okay. So the way that we've explained it is it all started because, because defects faces a lot of challenges and those challenges then just kind of, they're like ripples, you know, the, they start with the system and then they radiate out to the case managers and then to the children and then to the foster families. And a lot of those challenges are really deep rooted in flaws in policy and in, um, you know, the high turnover of case managers and in the insane caseloads and in the number of children coming into care and, the ways that foster families lack support, you know, it's all kind of rooted in that. And so what we are attempting to do is address those challenges outside of the DFACS setting. And so kind of our mission is to help DFACS address problems creatively and through the collective effort of foster parents. So we're building a, it's called the Five Hive, and we're building a network of all of the region five foster families and collectively and creatively thinking, how can we identify these problems and come together to provide a solution, not driven by policy, not driven by defects, but driven by foster parents. And so like a really easy example of this is, you know, you go through a lot of training to become a foster parent, but it's all really high level. Like, what do you do if a child runs away and what is reactive attachment disorder and what is a case plan. And, but like, nobody says, okay, on day one, you get a kid and you find a pediatrician and you find a school, right? Like that, that's the basic. And if you've never had, let's say you, you've been a foster parent for five years, but you've only had 15 year olds. What do you do when somebody drops a two year old off of your house? That's a whole nother world. Right. And so like, this is like the most basic thing is an example is we're making a provider list for all 12 counties. If you get a kid who's dropped off at your door and you need childcare and you need a pediatrician and you need a dentist and you need a therapist, you go to the provider list and it tells you all of those services, every place who services a foster child within every county in our region. So here's all of the daycares that provide care for foster children in every county. Here's all of the pediatricians who provide care for foster children in each of our counties. And then all 400 of us foster parents are not doing the same research. We're this all is con- brilliant. This is brilliant. It should be it's all good. over the country. I, I mean, right. It, I, I can't believe someone else hasn't already done this. Yes. And but, thank goodness you are. We're all doing the same research. So why don't we just all do the same research and put it into one document and hand it to new foster parents and say, here you go. Here's every, here's all the places you're going to go to because not everybody will take foster children for take for daycare. They just won't. And not every pediatrician takes our insurance and not every dentist. And so, it's no, it's no point in all of us making 30 phone calls just to find the one who does. Wow, Megan. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's like, just, it's just astounding. You're, it's not, it's not, we're not like solving life crises. We're just saying like, Hey, yeah, these- yeah, no, I'm sorry. You are. You, I'm, I, the fact that you don't realize that is just, is just cute as hell, but, but, oh, but, but you, but you, you are, you are, you are solving major issues just just even as an information hub mm-hmm. how how resourceful at what what a great resource right away yeah. right and we're you know like like an easy another easy example is our case managers get burnout they're overpaid yeah. they're overworked they're underpaid and some of the phone calls they get 
somebody else could answer that question. And so like something that we're doing in the hive is every new, every new family will get a mentor of an experienced family. And so if you don't know what to do in this situation, instead of your first call being your case manager, your first call is your mentor, because then that, that case manager is getting that many less calls. Excellent. And it could be as simple as like, I don't know where the courthouse is, or I don't know how to find my insurance card. All of us experienced foster parents know how to do those things. So let us help you instead of defects getting every single phone call. Yeah. So you're actually easing the strain, which is just fantastic. Right. So uh, you mentioned that you've worked with a few CASAs. What has your experience been? And you don't have to sugarcoat it because they have been amazing. Really? Um, Oh my gosh. Yes. Like my CASA is invited to, so we're married, we got married, um, but we're having like a big party this summer. And because COVID and you know, all the things. And like, I invited my casa to my wedding, my, my (laughs) wedding party, because I was like, I love you so much. Please come. (laughs) I don't know if I'm allowed to do that, but I did. (laughs) So no, I understand that at the end of the day, you know, sometimes a foster family gets a casa and like the personalities don't, don't mesh. And that happens, Yep. you know, and that's okay. But we're really lucky in that we've had two primary CASAs and my, my CASA, especially on my little girl's case, I think has worked harder on this case than every other human combined. She, I talked, there were, there were times in this case where we would talk daily, where she was problem solving. She was holding DFAX's hand and filling in their gaps. And she was holding bio mom's hand and filling in their gaps. And answering every phone call I had because she knew I might lose my mind momentarily. She has gone, I mean, a good CASA goes above and beyond in the difficult times. And unfortunately in foster care, there's a lot of difficult times. And so I, I told her once, I was like, I don't need therapy. I have you. And she's like, I don't think that's true. <laughs> um, but no, we've had really good experiences. And we always tell all of our new foster parents that come in, Put in your request now, get a CASA, because it can change everything about your case for the better. That's what that's what I've heard, and uh, it, it that's true in California for sure, but I don't know about you. Here in California, there's 35,000 kids in L.A. County and only 1,200 CASAs, so uh, there just are not enough of us. I would imagine that would be true where you are, too. That The number of children in care in L.A. County blows my mind. Mm. that is insane. I don't know how they do it. I really don't, but no, there's not enough CASAs. And, and, you know, unfortunately there are some CASAs who take on a case and then they, you know, they get into it and realize, Oh, this is a lot harder than I anticipated and don't see it through. And so that happens. Um, but there's a lot of kids who don't have CASAs. I, I do think maybe where we're a little bit lucky is because we're a college town. A lot of the law students and a lot of the social work students will do, will be a CASA while they're in school. And oh, I think that great. helps. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's great. That's great. I think, I think that helps a lot. A lot of the CASAs are here are young and in school, but that's okay. You know, as long as they're willing to put in the effort and they care. But no, I mean, CASA recruitment is hard. I always tell people, if you can't be a foster parent, but you want to be part of this mission, be a CASA or join a care team. Care teams are another thing we have here. And that's a great way to, to be involved and not have to take a child home. <laughs> And not have to take a child home. Exactly. Because some people can't do that. Some people just that that's, that's uh, just as you said, the, the, the question of staying in your lane. I I don't think I could be a a foster parent. I don't, 
I, I don't think I could stomach it. I don't, I think I, I, I don't think I could handle it, but I can be a casa and that yeah. has worked out. Um, now my kid now after five years is finally being adopted. <gasps> yeah. yeah. I know. We're all so happy. <laughs> wow. Five yep. years. Yep. And it's going to be super successful too. My little girl, uh, her life has changed, I think, because mm -hmm. because she got a casa. Mm -hmm. And that's that's really what it's all about. It's, it's, it's making those, just even a little bit, making the kids' lives just even a little bit better, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, I think that even for kiddos in foster care, if, if they're in a good home, we can provide them with as much normalcy as possible. And, I mean, that that helps a lot. Absolutely. You know, if your teenagers, you know, if your teenagers can play sports and be in clubs and still just do normal teenager things, like there comes a point where them being in foster care is just like back brain versus front of the brain thought, but it mm -hmm. takes a while to get there. Right. And have you felt the kids who have been in your home, do they feel stigmatized by being a foster kid? Has that come up? Mm. I'm sure some of them have. My teenagers probably don't. My teenagers are, I mean, they're crushing it. They're doing awesome. My teenagers have had a, for a long time. But I, you know, with the number of kids who have come and gone through my house, probably, yes, some of them have. And we just haven't had that conversation. Mm, yeah. We have a lot of kids. I don't know if you guys have this in, in California. But unfortunately, because we don't have enough foster homes, we have a lot of kids who go to group homes. We have a lot of group homes. Way too many. Yeah. Yeah. Way too many. Yep. Yep. And, and that's and, a much harder experience. Yeah. And, and, and of course, as you know, what happens and hopefully it doesn't happen there as much as it does here, but kids get a placement and then another placement and then another placement and then another placement. Then that means they change schools 15 times mm -hmm. and then they might end up finally in a group home that sucks. And yeah. that's just not a, that's not a good thing for any kid, even if they're all together, even if mm -hmm. they're like totally healthy, non-traumatized, you know, mm -hmm. even if they've come from a great background where it was all love. Mm -hmm. Once you start that moving around business, they, you know, they lose all footing. Yeah. And if you, especially if you're talking about a kid who maybe didn't go to school for two or three years pre-coming right. into foster care, we've had a lot of those. And then they come into foster care and in their first year in foster care, they go to four schools. You were already two years behind. Yeah. And now yeah. you've gone to four schools in a year. Like, how are they supposed to succeed? Yeah, it's crazy. It's, mm -hmm. it's yeah, it's just craziness. Yeah. So how do you feel? How, how, do, how do you feel about yourself, about the work that you, you and your wife do? <laughs> Personally, in our home, we, we feel, ooh, that's a hard question. I mean, in our home, it's our every day. Like, we don't think about it, you know? After a while, it's, okay, pick up the kids. How many kids do I have tonight? Okay, make dinner. How many children are eating tonight? It's your normal. And so at home, we don't think about it all that much. It's, I mean, it's just like anybody else's normal. I think where I think about it the most is where when I'm sitting down and working with, with the nonprofit where I'm thinking, okay, let me think of all the ways this is broken and how I'm going to fix it. That's where I really put the pressure on us is to, I take it personally to find ways to make it better. Right. You want to build something bigger, right? Yeah. Yes. And I want to build something um, that's sustainable that will outlive. Cause I'm not going to, I, 
I, I'm probably not going to be a foster parent until the day I die. Let's be honest. I'm going to retire one day and travel the world. <laughs> um, but I can't build something that dies with me or it was, or it's no good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I can't build something that just gets, gets taken down in policy. We've got to build something that is going to change the way foster care functions at its core. And that's, that's what I want. I love that. I love that idea. I just, it's so inspiring. It's just, it, it kind of, it's giving me goosebumps because I, I feel the foster care system in this country is very broken. And mm-hmm. in, in spite of valiant efforts of many, many, many people, it fails kids regularly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I don't know, and maybe, you know, I don't know. I mean, I only know Georgia, right? I only know my area. I don't know if there's another state who has it figured out. And I, if, if they do, I don't know why we're all not doing what they're doing. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I don't know either. That'd be interesting to find out. I know some people who might, who might be able to answer that question. And I will ask that question of them after this. I have one more question for you that I ask mm-hmm. all my guests, and I want to also ask you to dig deep if you can. Oh, gosh. Okay. What is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Hmm. I need to think for a minute. Um, I think people would probably find it very interesting. I can go into a room now and feel incredibly confident. Like I, I'm not afraid to walk into any room. I train people to get on a stage for a living. And- beautifully, you train them beautifully. I didn't mention that part that you that you that you ran the, the fantastic TEDx at at UGA. That's how that's how we met. Okay. Yes. So yeah. so I can train people to get on a stage, but I also do not mind public speaking, which a lot of people don't like to do. Like, is it my favorite thing in the entire world? No, but I guess the number of times of I've gotten in front of classes to teach and I've been put on the spot in meetings and I have a very, I can have a very dominant personality and I can be very bossy and I can, I'm, I don't, I don't have a fear where I need to hold back a lot, but as a child, I was terribly shy, Hmm. terribly shy crippling shy. You know, I was the kid who like did not come out from mom's legs. Wow. Really? No. And I was the kid who went to school crying every day (laughs) because mom was leaving me there and I had to go interact with strangers. And I cried myself so hard at sleepaway camp that my parents had to come get me. (laughs) (laughs) And like, if you ask my mom now, like when she was five, would she be talking to all these strangers in all these rooms with these important people saying important things? And my mom would say, hell no. <laughs> no. And you do do it really, really well. Thanks. <laughs> yeah. So I know you're super busy. So I thank you for making this happen. You were, you were like, I'm doing it. I don't care. I'm doing it. And, uh, and just so people know you're sitting on the floor in your bathroom recording. Yeah. So this is the dedication. (laughs) Yes. I've got, I've got people in asleep in every room. And then my teenagers wanted to watch TV downstairs. And I was like, okay, so I'm in the bathroom on the floor. (laughs) Yep. Yep. 
Okay. So I'm going to let you get a little more comfortable now. And um, my very best to you and your wife. And I really thank you for your work. You're welcome. Thank you. Talk okay. soon. Okay. Bye. Bye. Thank you, Megan, for everything that you do. And Five Hive, which is an incredible idea and hopefully something that will inspire others to do the same. In our next episode, Jane speaks with Hank Fortner, co-founder of Adopt Together, the world's largest nonprofit crowdfunding platform for adoption, a nonprofit dedicated to a world with no more orphans. They imagine a world where orphanages and the foster care system are things of the past, a family for every child, one child at a time. In the past 10 years, they've helped over 5,000 families adopt by raising over $28 million. So tune in next week for Hank Fortner. Thank you and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening, and if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.